0: Do you tend to see one type of friction naturally dominating over the others? And how should leaders of organizations consider the mix of these frictions in their approach and and how should they address these different frictions?
1: Yeah, this is a, an essential question if you want to start switching your mindset from fuel to friction. And the way we would think about this is that we don't think of a hierarchy of frictions. We don't think there's ne- necessarily one that is more prevalent across contexts, maybe within a particular context. Really, I like to think of this sort of metaphorically as you are you're operating like a detective trying to determine which are, which is, or which are the relevant frictions for any particular context. And when it comes to spotting frictions, I think one of the most important ideas is that, uh, you are in such a better place if what you are doing is anticipating frictions before they arise, then instead what we're often doing, it's easiest for us to get people caring a lot about frictions when they launch an idea. They launch an idea that is well-fueled, compelling evidence and data. They think just that evidence will speak for itself. What they instead is get they get indifference or pushback, and then they begin to wonder what are maybe these barriers, what are maybe the things that are holding people back, That is still, of course, a relevant exercise, but frictions are much more manageable if we can anticipate them before we launch the initiative than if we try and deal with them once they're already there. But in any one context, you might find there's just one particular barrier holding people back, or in fact, it might be several.
0: Yeah, the anticipation of the friction is great there. In your book, you also share examples of internal friction you use funding approvals employee adoption as examples and then you also talk about external frictions which is market adoption are there major differences in how leaders should actually address then internal versus external i understand there's no hierarchy but internal versus external should they be looking at it differently
1: Yeah, uh, this is a great question. It's not a, this is not a, because we are really thinking about change really across almost any context, social change, product innovation, internal change initiatives. This distinction between internal and external isn't one that's been salient for me. And I'm glad to have the opportunity to think about it. Let me suggest a a few ways in which that might matter off the top of my head. And perhaps there are other thoughts here. So one might be, I think one of the reasons why we don't naturally think in terms of friction is because uh, thinking about friction, building aerodynamic ideas requires that we, so fuel is all about the idea itself. And friction requires us to change our focus from the idea to the audience. And so that is perhaps one way in which this distinction between internal and external might matter, which is how close to um, and how well do you know that audience? And of course, that could vary in, in any particular context. But the really, frictions are about the very specific needs and context of a person, of your audience. And if you don't know that audience, then it's going to be very difficult to spot and disarm these frictions. Another way in which it may matter, and it brings us back to this topic of reactance and when you might have to take it seriously, is I suspect externally we're often trying to get people to often buy into new ideas and innovations where we've got a very particular target audience where we know there's a general openness to this thing and we just want them to choose our thing over these other things. I suspect often in the context of organizations internally Often what we are grappling with is painful change where we're, what we're asking of people to do is maybe learn n- new skills, uh, shift uh, careers, do things that are maybe in the interest of the organization, but maybe not in their immediate self-interest. And when that is the case, this is when reactance becomes the critical thing. Because it's not like people, if you tell me about some new some new program, and I come into it with an open mind. And if you're giving me the hard sell, my reaction isn't to push back. It's not like we push back against every new idea. What we push back against is when we have strong core beliefs and what you are attempting to do is you're just to say, I know you strongly believe that A is the right approach. And no, what I'm telling you is you need to do B. When we are challenging core beliefs, this is when people's strong reflex is to push back. And it leads to some really amazing aspects of human nature that are very hard for people to accept. It is why, and it's hard for people to, to get their mind around this, strong evidence when you're trying to change people's core beliefs is bad evidence. If you believe that an initiative is a bad idea, if that if you've put your stake in the ground and then you give people compelling evidence that they are wrong, the rational belief is that they will update in the direction toward your idea. If you look at human nature, if you look at the research on this, what people tend to do is it tends to push them further away from your idea and initiative. And that's why once you understand that, you come to see why a, a sort of fuel-based approach of implementation is often so problematic because very often it's not just that our efforts aren't working. They're often making things worse. they solidifying people's, they're entrenching people's views away from the idea you're trying to bring to life.
0: Yeah, Lauren, I remember listening to one of your uh, talks on YouTube where you brought up the example of firefighters and how the European, they basically brought to, to the U.S., a European, a different approach for putting out fires and how that did not fail, how, how that failed, how it didn't work and why it didn't work. And it, it basically brought to life exactly what you're just talking about right now.
1: Yeah, and it was a case of, this is taken us back into roughly the 1950s and New York City firefighters realizing that the traditional approach, like the old hose approach had some problems with it. They heard about this revolutionary technique called the spritzer system. They went out and it came from Sweden. And so they went out and they went over there to Sweden to Stockholm. They were impressed. They felt like this was the future. Uh, This is clearly a better way to fight fires. So they bring this new technology back. And notice even in in just the very few details I've shared, you can already, and and basically they roll this out and you can already pick up on some of the problems. Number one, what we're talking about here is a radically new technique and a radically new technique on so many different dimensions. One, it requires people to unlearn their old comfortable habits, pick up this new technology that's unfamiliar to them. Also the source of this is a problem, right? This is the 1950s, like World War II is fresh in the mind. Like New York City firefighters want nothing to do with an innovation that comes from a bunch of socialists uh, who were neutral in the Second World War. Make that joke because my family, my grandparents are from there. And so this idea was radically different and foreign in lots of ways, which naturally created a lot of resistance to it. But as the fire chiefs began to feel the early resistance, the natural reaction was to push harder against that resistance. And that pushing mobilized people to fight against it using energy motivation that really exceeded what fire chiefs imagined and really exceeded their own motivations to create change. You see, this is why in the 1980s, Americans went to war against seatbelts. Yes. We had politicians yeah. who ran on anti-seatbelt campaigns. We had people marching down the street when we tried to mandate this action. Now, this is an unquestionably, seatbelts are an unquestionably good idea. I would love for someone to stand up and make the case against them. But when people felt pressured to change, the reaction to that was to fight against it. Yeah,
0: reactance, love it.
1: Lauren, in the book, there's
0: a
2: really interesting story around how cake mix used to have powdered eggs in it, and it didn't actually catch on until they actually took that ingredient out and had people start using fresh eggs because it uh, tapped into this emotional need to actually create a cake, bake a cake from scratch and, and give it to somebody. So I think that's a really interesting example of actually introducing friction, which might be a little bit counterintuitive but are there other examples that come to mind where it's actually beneficial to introduce some friction to change behavior
1: yeah yeah that's a beautiful example what i'd say is so you were adding a step but adding that step removed a different friction and that was so the idea that the, the cake mix story is here again baking is a very sensitive process we're getting the details right matter and so one might think that a cake mix that takes all that ambiguity and uncertainty out of the product and process is a obvious winner and it wasn't for a very long time and they so the guy who is the, the person who is the innovator of the focus group was brought in to think about this problem really come to understand why is it that people didn't embrace the easier thing? Because it's the easier thing. The reason is because of what it represents. So what it represents is care. What you like? What, why do you make a cake? You make a cake because it's not for you to eat because it's delicious. That's not the real job it's doing. The real job it's doing is it's something you give to someone to show that you care. And the ease of cake mix signaled, or at least people feared, that it showed a lack of caring and it also didn't give people any feeling of pride in the experience. So the really clever insight was to start adding at least a simple step, because notice it wasn't a convoluted step. It wasn't something that a lot of effort-based friction to the process, but the simple step of just adding eggs, which before were just part of the cake mix. And once bakers had that opportunity it did two really important things it one it gave them the feeling again of I'm a baker like I did something and that made me feel like this cake was mine and it re it restored that feeling of care and I think what's really interesting about that point I suspect many of the audience many people watching will be familiar with a jobs to be done or jobs theory which is the idea that you know the reason we do something isn't just for functional reasons, it's also for emotional and social reasons. I think one of the ideas we're trying to, one contribution we're trying to make around emotional friction is that when we think about where emotional friction might come from, it's not just for functional reasons, right? The negative emotion, the anxiety, the fear, the doubt might not just be because you think this new innovation works against my interests or is gonna be ineffective, et cetera often the emotional friction comes from these social emotional broader considerations like what does it signal what is it how does it make me look like what feelings will it produce for me that really isn't about the functionality of the idea
2: yeah I I think that's a really interesting notion and it actually reminds me Of a project I worked on a few years ago with a children's hospital. We were looking at creating a medication adherence solution for teenagers living with chronic disease. Hmm. And so, when you think about medication adherence, we as the design team initially our, our thoughts went to those functional needs, thinking about reducing effort. How do we make it easy to remember to take this medication every day? remember to take the medication with you when you travel. But we decided to dig a little bit deeper and do some interviews with these teenage patients. And so rather than start these interviews just solely focused on effort and hey, tell me what kind of alarm you need to remember to take your medication. Mm -hmm. We started broad and we said, tell me about some of the things that get in the way of you taking your medication every day. And I'll never forget one of the, the first participants that we spoke with, she said, the guidance is that we need to take this medication every day at the same time each morning. And sometimes I just want to wake up and feel like a normal teenager and not be reminded that I'm living with this disease.
1: Oh, uh, that's a beautiful example.
2: Yeah. So then what we did with that insight was it unlocked all these additional features around connecting them with other teenagers globally that were living with chronic disease, allowing them to input motivational reminders and and things that help them remember what they were staying healthy for. So it really helped us think about the importance of digging deeper. So not just focusing on what seems like the obvious answer, because that's only part of the answer most of the time and really trying to uncover some of those needs and, and those frictions that are maybe less apparent
1: yeah I what a what an effective and, and powerful example and what really stands out to me about that story is I think at times when people hear friction they can take it to mean that this is an exercise devoted to streamlining ideas in the uh, innovations products in the in the sort of effort sense and, and effort is a really important part. Uh, it can be a very powerful barrier, but friction is so r- much richer and broader than that. Like this isn't just about making things one click buys it's re- it's really understanding what are the deeper, broader impediments to change. And what I really like of the other, the part of that story is you ask the question, what are the things that are getting in the way? And I think that is such a uh, helpful thought experiment for switching attention from fuel to friction. Like the, the question I'd like to pose to people is, because again, if, if people, if, if things aren't succeeding, the instinct is, well, we need to elevate appeal. But what if we instead ask the question, let's assume for a second, people actually like this idea but that there are these barriers, there are things that are getting in the way from people doing precisely what you want them to do. What might those barriers be? Once you ask that question, now people begin to identify and begin to determine some of those kind of broader, deeper frictions to adoption.
0: Yeah, but what we are also seeing, Lauren, is fuel is one piece of the equation, friction is the other, but there's also another piece on organizational cultural organization change, <clears throat> leadership influence, right? We are seeing time and again, especially with the pandemic, organizations are bringing in new leaders, innovation thought leaders in order to shake things up. But they land up facing a uphill battle with building the trust, getting acquainted while trying to get traction with new initiatives. So what's your advice on how is it that leaders can actually influence without authority? How is it that the whole concept of servant leadership, what can leaders do in order to refine these skills while keeping in mind that to bring these innovative ideas to life, you think about the fuel, you think about the friction, but how do you Bring people along. How do you make that cultural change and bring the rest of the organization along?
1: I would encourage them to do a friction analysis of why aren't people embracing innovation as part of the culture? I think one of the I think this is the most common question in in different sort of executive education programs and other contexts that I hear is people wanting to think about, it's either breaking down silos, they want more collaboration or they want more innovation. And I think a really interesting question First is to ask leaders, how are you doing that? How are you going about spurring what it is you want? And sometimes it's more formal mechanisms like different kinds of incentives, but also from an informal authority sense, often what they're doing is imploring, they're hand-wringing, they're pleading, they're making the case for why we need to be uh, different, why we need to embrace innovation. I think a really interesting question to ask is, when in the week does innovation happen? Is it, is that a a 9am Tuesday morning endeavor? (laughs) Uh, If it requires, if that's inherently collaborative, who sets up the meeting? Where does it happen? Do they know what meeting room? The point is very often when people are saying, I, I like there are very few places where people will reject the idea that a culture of innovation is a good thing. Often it's, that we are not creating environments for it to flourish. Right. It's right. what I would say is, are we creating windows of opportunity where if you found that now people are carving out times, if we are helping people execute on the behavior we want a lot of what looks like resistance is really just ambiguity and uncertainty. And if you look at why people don't get health exams if you look at why people don't vote, if you don't, there are some people who are against those things. That's a very small percentage of the population. What's really going on in most cases is you have this tremendous intention action gap. Yes. And they, I think I should get a yearly checkup. I want to vote, but I just forget to do it or my day gets complicated or unexpected events arise. And that is why The most successful like voting, get out the vote interventions have nothing to do with fuel. It's not patriotism. It's not emotional charging. It's not any, it's getting people to write down in their calendar, they're going to vote. Where are they going to go? How are they going to get there? thinking through the actual mechanics? So one piece of recommend, one recommendation for a new leader would be to think about what are the frictions that are getting in the way. Of, of people embracing change. And often it isn't about these big sort of motivational elements. It's often thinking through the basic mechanics of doing so. The other piece of this is, do you want to move fast and probably fail? Or do you want to build stronger commitment and have a greater chance of succeeding long-term. A fuel-based approach to creating change when you don't have the authority to command your idea into existence allows you to simply offer mandates to leverage incentives, etc. If your formal authority is powerful enough, fine, or maybe it creates reactance and backlash when you don't have the formal authority to command your ideas into existence, what we need to think about is a broad process that I would call self-persuasion. And I think it's perhaps best captured in the idea that innovations, ideas, new new initiatives are like children, people like our own better than anyone else's. And When you have to create change and don't have the full formal authority to do, I think the fundamental process is you need to think about how do I make this feel like our idea? People are fundamentally more effectively, more powerfully influenced, not by ideas that are given to them, but rather by ideas that they arrive at on their own. This is why the Socratic method is so powerful or like, what is Socrates doing in that technique? He's asking questions that allow someone else to arrive at an undeniable conclusion. But that person takes, it's not a series of arguments laid out for that person. That person goes through a process of self-discovery or self-insight. So one of the ideas I would encourage people to think about is how can we Uh, allow people to feel some sense of authorship? How can we get people to feel as though they have arrived? Maybe not even at every single aspect of the idea or or innovation that might feel too laborious, but the more people feel as though they have been a part of this process, the more likely they are to embrace it. And the broad uh, term I give for this is what we might call self persuasion.
2: Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And I think that goes for both end users out in the external market, as well as you know, internal collaborators and, and stakeholders. The sooner you can bring them into the process, the better. Fantastic.